End all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. who have an insatiable appetite for all things in life, who scream at nothing and everything at the same time, who dance till sunup, who cause the sun to set again with irreverent bow, who rival the moon with gravitational force, who leave rooms feeling empty and earthquake struck, who don't give a fuck, who make, who do, who dream out loud and laugh like maniacs, who draw shock and awe on faces graced with watching, who create from the soul of an orgasm, who swagger even alone in the shower, who fight with passion, and love with passion and our passion who catapult over cliffs in the name of revolution who would rather die than fall in line to conform who constantly challenge the norm who greet each and every day as if just born i say to you i know your greatness the way a suicide jumper knows weightless just before the impact and in fact i know it best when i say to you i love you are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts are ye on a raft without a patter well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl...
talk past as Win at work by communicating effectively with Grammarly. Meet Ty. He is emailing a difficult client. I think we should explore a few solutions. Grammarly ensures Ty's confidence comes through in his writing. That way, clients see him as professional and polished every time. Let's explore a few solutions. Meet Dylan, who's prepping for a big investor presentation. The revenue that our business... Radio. We already heard that one. Um, let's play some Nina Simone. I want to fest. I want to feature Nina Simone. Kind of uh, can't see. This is Labor and Love Radio. In case you didn't know, we skipped last week went to a meeting about labor education, and I want to talk about that today. Uh, labor education, how critical it is, huh? How about this one? The name of this tune is Mississippi Goddamn. every word Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my rest and everybody knows about Mississippi Goddamn Alabama's got me so upset Tennessee made me lose my pressure much longer somebody say a prayer alabama's got me so upset tennessee made me lose my rest and everybody knows about mississippi goddamn this is a show tune but the show hasn't been written for it yet Trail. School children sitting in jail. 
black cat cross my path I think every day's gonna be my last Lord have mercy on this land of mine We all gonna get it in due time I don't belong here, I don't belong there I've even stopped believing in prayer Just about do. I've been there, so I know. You keep on saying, go slow. Well, that's just the trouble. Washing the windows, picking the cotton. You're just plain rotten. You're too damn lazy. Plot. All I want is equality for my sister, my brother, my people, and me. Yes, you lied to me all these years. You told me to wash and clean my ears and talk real fine just like a lady. And you'd stop calling me Sister Sadie.
Okay, everybody, and welcome to Labor and Love Radio. We got it off the ground today. <clears throat> Successfully, you got about 10 seconds, I think, of some razzmatazz uh, ad. We started out what we just heard, Michelle. Degocello. Michelle Degocello. I hope I'm getting, I'm getting that right, because I love the way she sings. And she was singing the hippie anthem, Suzanne. Suzanne Takes You Down by uh, Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen, who once said that every time you say the word revolution, you're putting the revolution off by 11 seconds or something like that. Which, uh, for an excellent songwriter, was maybe a little strange (laughs) to say, as far as I was concerned. At any rate... A beautiful song, Suzanne. And then um, before that one, Nina Simone, I bet you thought I was kidding. Mississippi Goddamn. And um, Nina Simone is begging you as a white person. I think probably her audience was had white people in it. She's begging you to understand what's going on in the U.S. of A. It's happening every day. People are being shot. People are being oppressed. People are being destroyed slowly over the years by racism and class hatred and racial hatred. And before that, the Black National Anthem, lift every voice and sing Till Earth and Heaven Ring with All the Joys of Liberty. Poem by James Weldon Johnson. Set to music by Johnson and his brother, I believe. Yes. Okay. What have we got for you today? Well, we're going to talk about Ida Wells. 
anti-lynching crusader and labor figure. We're going to bring you Radio Labor with a worldwide labor report. We're going to look at the suppressed ML King. We're going to look on Democracy Now! about a, an old civil rights case in Natchez, Mississippi that's just being settled right now. And we're going to have our regular features. Labor History in Two Minutes, the uh, Campus Correspondence from UC Davis, and, uh, well, a whole lot more. So much to name. This is Black History Month, and, um, again, people always say it, and it all keeps on happening. Black history is American history, and American history never stops happening. It's happening all the time, all around us, not just in February. At any rate, this is The Bee, and you're listening to Mutiny Radio. We're here at 2781 21st Street in the heart of the mission. If you know about a three-bedroom apartment for rent or a house for rent, please let me know. We're on the look. Um, what do we, let's start out with something, okay? Let's start out with Radio Labor, okay, Worldwide Labor Report, all over the world in every land and clime. Crime, climb, in every land and climb. Workers stand up as workers for respect and a better life. And this tells us all about it, all over the world. Listen up, please. And never alone if you're working labor. Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, February 11th, 2022. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, how artificial intelligence is being used to privatize education, the seven human rights instruments used by international labor, the Labor Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labor. The Global Union for Teachers, Education International, is warning that the use of artificial intelligence in schools may lead to loss of privacy for students and minimizing the role of teachers. EI represents more than 30 million teachers and other education workers in 172 countries. It released a report outlining concerns that huge education companies will collect massive amounts of data on students and replace teachers with computer programs. I talked to one of the authors of the report about EI's concerns. Anna Hogan is a lecturer at the University of Queensland in Australia. I asked her about the activities of Pearson, one of the education corporations using artificial intelligence in education. 
Pearson is one of the world's largest education companies and it's moved from being this textbook supplier to become this really mainstream provider of all sorts of education products and services. So things like curriculum materials, assessment, online learning programs, teacher professional development and the list goes on. Uh, and what Pearson's doing, or their strategy, is really moving into that development of the digital learning aspects of their business. And how they're doing that is working towards personalised learning programs that start to integrate artificial intelligence. So personalised learning is where students sit at their computer and they learn through an algorithm which dictates what they need to learn. So you can think of it a little bit like a Siri or Alexa becoming your new school teacher. And the way that companies like Pearson develop these programs, it requires a huge amount of data. They need to understand how students learn to be able to program an algorithm that can essentially teach students what they need to know and in a way that's best for that particular individual. So to get to your uh, question about why we're concerned about this type of um, data privatisation, and there's quite a few issues here. So the first one's around privacy. So in terms of how student data is collected and what types of data are collected. And then this links to the issues of consent. So often users don't have a knowledge or understanding that their data is being collected or in the way that it is used. So, for example, Pearson will collect data from users interacting with its products and services in responses to their exercises, assignments, coursework, instructor comments, the activities they've completed. While these are all de-identified and aggregated to analyse how um, Pearson services are used and then going into their education research and supporting the strategic development of its products and services. But in the report, we basically suggest that then this leads to issues of transparency, as consent is not always explicitly sought. And then there's also issues around data ownership and data responsibility, as Pearson suggests they're only stewards of student data, and it's actually owned by its institutional customers, which then leads to this idea that, I suppose, around data openness, because if schools own the data or students own the data and Pearson owns the products that are being produced and sold from the data, and essentially the knowledge is being locked up in corporate silos, meaning that the benefit for learners and society more broadly is not realised. So this is what we call the privatisation of the data and the data infrastructure. So if Pearson was to open up and share their knowledge of their algorithms and what they're learning from this data, then potentially the social benefits for all of society in terms of student knowledge and understanding would be uh, greatly enhanced. And I suppose uh, the last thing to sort of raise in terms of the concern is about the ethics of these programs themselves. So we know that personalised learning uses algorithms to predict customers' capabilities. And these predictions basically allow students to go to next types or it basically grants or withholds their access to different types of learning opportunities. So in a way, students are being taught through these predicted actions and it's not really allowing them the opportunity to surprise us as they often do in our traditional classrooms. I think the point of personalised learning is that this happens on computers and it very much lessens the reliance of brick and mortar schools and professional teachers. Human rights that labor has been supporting for years are under severe attack all around the world. See Marie Ainsborough has a report. As the respect for human rights around the world is seeming to deteriorate, unions are fighting back. For example, Public Services International, the PSI, has published a booklet entitled A Practical Guide to Trade Union Action, International Human Rights Instruments. The PSI is the global union federation which represents public sector workers at the world level. 
It has more than 30 million members in 154 countries. It released a video describing its human rights booklet. PSI innovates once again with our launch of the Practical Guide to Union Action, International Instruments for the Defense of Human Rights, a guide to strengthen organized actions at the local, national, and global level. With this guide, we highlight seven distinct instruments, starting with the Universal System of Human Rights of the United Nations. Based on the Universal Human Rights Declaration and on international human rights treaties adopted by the United Nations, the Universal System is composed of conventional and non-conventional mechanisms created to monitor compliance with international obligations. Another instrument is the Monitoring System for the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Approved by the United Nations in 2015, Agenda 2030 defines 17 objectives for sustainable development, the SDGs, including specific objectives on work. All of the SDGs contain specific goals and measures that can be monitored by trade unions. Through the Union Cooperation Network for Development of the International Trade Union Confederation, unions are involved in the 2030 Agenda process, monitoring compliance, including, for example, by publishing parallel union reports. Next, the System for the Promotion and Implementation of the Organization for Cooperation and Economic Development, the OECDs. Guidelines for Multinational Enterprises. The guidelines for multinational enterprises adopted by the OECD are recommendations made by governments about the conduct of multinational companies in all of their activities and operations, wherever they occur, including throughout global value or production chains. In cases where violations of the recommendations occur, trade unions can register and follow up on formal complaints with national contact points. The fourth instrument, Global Framework Agreements. GFAs are agreements negotiated between global unions and multinational companies with the objective of recognizing and guaranteeing workers' rights globally throughout production chains. GFAs often apply to suppliers and subcontractors, as well as the company that has signed the agreement. Labor chapters in free trade agreements provide a set of mechanisms whereby the signatory parties, in this case governments, recognize their commitment to guaranteeing minimum labor standards as defined and agreed to at the ILO. Violations of these standards can lead to the creation of arbitrations panels, which may ultimately result in the suspension of benefits seated in the free trade agreement itself. Labor safeguards of the multilateral development banks. International trade union action resulted in the creation of mechanisms and compliant procedures to guarantee respect for and protection of fundamental labor standards at the international finance institutions, banks that loan billions to governments and companies to finance investment projects. Lastly, but no less importantly, the International Criminal System for Crimes Against Humanity and Genocide. Crimes against humanity and genocide are understood in the international community to be serious aberrations that should be reported and denounced at any time. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. 
This week, our top stories section included links to coverage of the increasingly dangerous role played by journalists around the world as the International Federation of Journalists announced that last year, 47 media workers were killed on the job. Almost as bad was the news that the murderers are, in most cases, free and will remain so as they enjoy impunity from prosecution. Another top story related to journalism was the ongoing attack on the media in Hong Kong. The International Federation of Journalists now describes the situation for media workers there as dire. We also carried news from Canada where trucking unions made clear that the blockades there have little or nothing to do with drivers or their industry. From Ghana, where the uni strike finished its fifth week, effectively shutting down all universities in that country. And from Slovenia, where healthcare workers won what they call a life changing wage increase after 18 months of organizing. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found a story detailing why nurses, most of them women, in New Zealand are spending a large proportion of their income buying their own personal protective equipment, how construction unions around the world are preparing for International Women's Day, and several stories about the struggles and strikes being organized by rural public health workers, every last one of them women, across India. A small sample of the stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week includes reaction to the workplace murder of a nurse in South Africa and the horrendous working conditions endured by Nepali migrant workers at a factory in Malaysia that made personal protective equipment for customers in Canada and in Europe. We also had items about the ways in which Brazilian women are more often blamed for construction site accidents than men, and demands for a criminal investigation into the deaths of healthcare workers in the United Kingdom who had been provided with inadequate personal protective equipment during the pandemic, or with none at all. Our photo of the week is of Mexican auto workers who were celebrating their victory when the results of their union representation vote were announced. The workers won an important victory with the support of their USian and Canadian co-workers. Check out our Mexico page for a huge amount of news and analyses on what this vote means for the future of the movement in that country. LaborStart hosts online solidarity actions at the requests of unions around the world. This week we'd like to highlight an urgent appeal for online solidarity with the eight workers imprisoned for leading a legal strike at a Cambodian casino. Join over 12,000 other workers around the world in sending your solidarity by joining our online action. In just a few seconds, you can do your part in this struggle by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of this and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Union Nation with She's a Rebel Girl.
Labor news you can use. You can listen to our daily newscasts and features at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. All right, so that was Rebel Girl. And we'll talk a little bit more about that song. That's a, uh, a Joe Hill song. Um, Uh, about a certain woman, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. I want to play um, Bill Brunzi. And um, Bill Brunzi has a song called If You're Black, Get Back. Black, White, and Red. Black, White, and Brown, I think. Let's see. Black, white, and brown. Um, that that about teaching was very interesting. I mean that that's how a lot of people want teaching of the future to be, not between person and person, but between computer screen in person and computer screen doesn't just mean a computer screen that means there's someone behind that screen and in that program that is controlling what the the computer is doing um if there's any system or type of human endeavor that begs to have human-to-human connection. It is education. That's not to say you can't learn some things from computers. You might learn some subject matter. You might learn some techniques of doing things that are very enriching. But what's your attitude about learning? Where did that come from? Who developed that with you? Who encourages you if you make a mistake? Who teaches you another way around? Or how to relate to your learning when you're having a bad life? A bad day that day. No. Education education needs to be personal. Here's Brownie McGee. We'll play a couple more songs. song I'm singing, brother, know that is true. If you're black and got to work for a living, hey, 
what people will say. If you white, you all right. If you brown, stick around. If you black, oh brother, get back, get back, get back. I was in a place the other night. They were having fun. They were drinking beer and wine, and me, I couldn't buy none. If you white, you all right. If you brown, stick around. If you black, oh, brother, get back, get back, get back. Office, got my number and I fell in line. They called everybody number, but they never did call mine. If you white, you all right. If you brown, stick around. If you black, poor brother, get back, get back, get back. Me and a man working side by side. This is what it meant. He was making a dollar now, and I was only getting 50 cents. If you white, you all right. If you brown, stick around. If you black. Oh, brother, get back, get back, get back. I helped to build this country. I fought for it, too. Now I guess you can see what a black man's got to do. If you're white, you're all right. If you're brown, stick around. If you're black, Poor oh, brother, get back, get back, get back. Help to win this victory with my plowing hole. Now I just want to know what you gonna do about the Jim Crow. If you're white, you're all right. If you're brown, stick around. If you're black, poor oh, brother, get back, get back, get back.
day, we were straight getting killed. Uh -huh. A couple of black leaders tried to even the field. But still, in 2011, it's all bad. The release of Mazzalee got a sad mad. As a race, we've been through hell and back. Everybody wanna be like us, you know that. But they don't want the problems that come along. Only reason we're here is cause we're strong. Still getting treated wrong in the eyes of the law. And they wonder why we act like we do. Yeah, it's true. It's an exaggeration. It feel like a whole situation. The rebel girl was a person, a real person. <laughs> there were so many rebel girls, of course. But the one referred to in this song, which was written by uh, Union songwriter Joe Hill, was Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was an organizer for the IWW, among other things. By the time she was 17, she had been expelled from high school for giving speeches about socialism and had already been hired as an organizer by the industrial workers of the world. In the next few years, she participated in labor campaigns with garment workers, miners, and textile workers. In Seattle, she once chained herself to a lamppost to delay her arrest. During her long career, she spoke out for the eight-hour day, safe working conditions, union recognition, birth control, women's suffrage, and a whole lot else. She died while on a trip to the Soviet Union, had joined the Communist Party in some, some point in her life, I believe in the 40s. Joe Hill's song, The Rebel Girl, is dedicated to Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, it's great to fight for freedom with a rebel girl. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. Ah. And after that, we had the Oscar Grant song. Uh, Injustice, Injustice by John Taylor. Story, uh, in song about a young man who was shot dead by a, a security guard. Uh, Rand at the time was unarmed. 
he was handcuffed. The uh, security guard held him down on the ground, pulled out a gun, and shot him. Later testified that he had mistaken his taser for a gun. Imagine that. And now, so that's gotten to be now more of a, a regular thing, a, a way for a policeman to muddy the waters, you know. Oh, I didn't mean to shoot him. I was reaching for my taser. And I'm sure it happens. And the question is not whether or not it happens, but why does that have to be a death situation for a young black man or young black women, old black women, old black men? There's no... Here's a special one from Duck Doja. Duck Doja is uh, somebody I know. He's writing for his father, my good friend, Earl Coleman. Duck Doja. I got 12 years down and I still owe nine. Pops getting old, so now I'm doing double time. Prison life got changed, so my tears, yet I still cry. Concerned convicts look at me and they all sympathize. I'm trying to conceal and contain when I'm feeling inside. Recognize the consequences of how I'm living my life. Man, what I wouldn't give just to be by his side. Cause we only live once and there ain't no next time. I promise not to do tomorrow. What I could do now from this point on in my life, that's how I'm getting down. Realizing now's the time and place to make some changes. No more tears of hate, anger, fear, and frustration. Or walking with more issues than a mental patient. Like sitting with my pops, waiting for our Lord to take them. I give them to God and ask them for the strength to face them. Cause without faith, there ain't nothing else that could replace them. Hey, Earl. What's up with you? That's the thought in my mind when I look in the mirror one day. I'll be there with you instead of sitting alone in a cell holding on to your picture. Hey, Earl. What's up with you? That's the thought in my mind when I look in the mirror one day. I'll be there with you instead of sitting alone in a cell holding on to your picture. Imagine looking at the world. Through God's eyes, discover the hidden meanings behind which you once loved and despised. What I want for myself is that which I want for me. There's so many trapped in confusion, living a life of hypocrisy. As a man, I stand up forgiven by my fellow men who say they believe as I do. Maybe that's God's plan to be an example of faith to those who all know me. Because I'm grounded in the spirit like an angel with a broke wing. My faith in God promises eternal life after death. So me and my pops will be together forever, I guess. I suppose better off than those lacking sincerity. And I pray for the souls as they take up space next to me this is for my father you know i know how you feel like i said before i do what i can and that's real write a letter or call just to check up on you never miss no opportunity to show you i love you hey earl what's up with you that's the thought in my mind when i look in the mirror one day i'll be there with you instead of sitting alone in a cell holding on to your picture say earl What's up with you? That's the thought in my mind when I look in the mirror one day. I'll be there with you instead of sitting alone in a cell holding on to your picture. Welcome home.
Okay, that was uh, Duck Dojo, a.k.a. Darnell, singing about his father, one of my very best friends, lifetime friend, friend of 50 years. Passed away uh, in October, I believe. I guess I blotted it out. <laughs> I'm trying not to, to remember. Here's some blues by Victoria Spivey. school-aged children are methodically lied to regarding significant aspects of history, especially events that occur throughout U.S. borders. This approach to history...
Okay, this is about the suppressed Martin Luther King. From embracing a more progressive way to view the world we live in. Children are routinely taught to celebrate selective and false aspects of the lives of murderers, land thieves, and enslavers. Everyone from Christopher Columbus to Andrew Jackson to George Washington, just to name a few. The likes of these men are prominently adorned on currency, have schools named after them, and even have national holidays in their honor. Unsuspecting youth are taught also to honor these types of individuals on an almost daily basis within their schools and throughout the larger society. This all happens while people whose lives and acts should be celebrated are routinely marginalized or are rewritten to appease the sensibilities of the dominant hegemony. If we collectively envision a brighter future, one that is riddled with peace, justice, and equality, then we must start by setting better examples for the youth. We should encourage them to celebrate the lives and actions of people who were motivated to improve humanity and not to exploit it. Teach the children to celebrate social justice champions and not those who are deniers of justice and freedom. This ongoing series of vignettes is geared at shedding some much needed light on significant aspects of historical figures and events. We must reclaim history from the revisionists. We must work to build a better global society, one significant example at a time. The premeditated suppression of significant aspects of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy occurs on a year-to-year -year basis. The adults who participate in this deliberate cover-up range from disingenuous politicians media pundits, to even so-called educators. These people may try to rewrite history, however, all they really can do is attempt to suppress it, hoping that the masses, especially youth, never stumble upon various inconvenient truths regarding this late great social justice champion. I come here tonight and plead with you. Believe in yourself and believe that you're somebody as I said to a group last night, nobody else can do this for us. No document can do this for us. No Lincolnian Emancipation Proclamation can do this for us. No Kennesonian or Johnsonian Civil Rights Bill can do this for us. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own Emancipation Proclamation. Don't let anybody take your manhood. Be proud of our heritage. As somebody said earlier tonight, we don't have anything to be ashamed of. Somebody told a lie one day. They couched it in language. They made everything black, ugly, and evil. Look in your dictionary and see the synonyms of the word black. It's always something degrading and low and sinister. Look at the word white. It's always something pure, high and clean. 
But I want to get the language right tonight. I want to get the language so right that everybody here will cry out, Yes, I'm black. I'm proud of it. I'm black and beautiful. Unfortunately, they are far from the visionaries that people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. really were. They do not see how socially progressive actions by individuals and communities can play a major role in laying the foundation for a radically more egalitarian and social justice-oriented society. Dr. King was, in fact, one of those visionaries who saw his actions and words as tools that could be used to educate, inspire, and organize people to create a much better society, even if he was not alive to witness it. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stood for much more than what mainstream America has methodically attempted to reduce him to. In fact, if he were alive today, many of the corporate warmongering politicians would perhaps be vilifying him for his stringent anti-war policy. A time comes when silence is betrayal, even when pressed by the demands of inner truth. Men do not easily assume the task of opposing their government's policy, especially in time of war. Nor does the human spirit move without great difficulty against all the apathy of conformist thought within one's own bosom and in the surrounding world. Some of us who have already begun to break the silence of the night have found that the calling to speak is often a vocation of agony. But we must speak. We must speak with all the humility that is appropriate to our limited vision. But we must speak. I've chosen to preach about the war today because I agree with Dante that the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who in a period of moral crisis maintain their neutrality. Now, of course, one of the difficulties in speaking out today grows out of the fact that there are those who are seeking to equate dissent with disloyalty. It's a dark day in our nation when high-level authorities will seek to use every method to silence dissent. And I say that those who are seeking to make it appear that anyone who opposes the war is a fool or a traitor or an enemy of our soldiers is a person who has taken a stand against the best in our tradition. But there will be no meaningful solution until some attempt is made to know these people and hear their broken cry. 
God. And I knew that I could never again raise my voice against the violence of the oppressed in the ghettos without having first spoken clearly to the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, my own government. We are called to speak for the weak, for the voiceless, for the victims of our nation, and for those it calls enemy. For no document from human hands can make these humans any less our brothers. We are met by deep but understandable mistrust. To speak for them is to explain this lack of confidence in Western words, and especially their distrust of American intentions now. Now that is little left to build on save bitterness. The world now demands a maturity of America that we may not be able to achieve. I am as deeply concerned about our own troops there as anything else. For it occurs to me that what we are submitting them to is not simply the brutalizing process that goes on in any war where armies face each other and seek to destroy. We are adding cynicism to the process of death, for they must know after the short period there that none of the things we claim to be fighting for are really involved. And the more sophisticated surely realize that we are on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create a hell for the poor. Somehow this madness must cease. We must stop now. This way of settling differences is not just. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. I speak as a citizen of the world, for the world as it stands aghast at the path we have taken. I speak as one who loves America, to the leaders of our own nation. The great initiative in this war is ours. The initiative to stop it must be ours. Dr. King was not motivated by money or consensus. He was motivated by conscience. A man of conscience can never be a consensus leader. He doesn't take a stand in order to search for consensus. He's ultimately a molder of consensus. And I've always said that the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and moments of convenience, but where he stands in moments of challenge and moments of controversy. And I would take this position even if I didn't have the majority of people agreeing with me now. This is a valuable lesson in leadership that every youth should learn. Many of the politicians who erroneously extol Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. each year on the day of his holiday are the same ones who unconditionally support the U.S.'s military campaigns and imperialist wars. Their hollow words seldom, if ever, praise MLK for his opposition to the imperialist Vietnam War or his opposition to this country's gigantic military expenditure as opposed to using that same money for social programs and not on war. Tony, our next guest is the, is the winner of the Nobel Prize for Peace and perhaps the foremost spokesman for 
the nonviolent faction uh, in the American Negro Civil Rights Movement. Now, his recent speeches and sermons urging Negroes not to fight in Vietnam have initiated a verbal argument among prominent Negroes that threatens to split the civil rights movement wide open. Would you please welcome a very outstanding and controversial gentleman, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I said, I said to Dr. King, I want to put you right in the middle. I wasn't thinking. You've been put in the middle quite, quite often, haven't you? I'm starting right. Dr. King, uh, why did you decide to urge Negroes not to fight in Vietnam? Well, I think my view has uh, been a little distorted at that point. I haven't only urged Negroes not to fight. Uh, I feel that the war is so unjust, so abominable, so futile and bloody and costly that no, nobody should be fighting there. I haven't limited my concern to just the American Negro, although I know we are dying in disproportionate numbers there, and uh, we are on the losing end both there and at home, because as long as the war in Vietnam continues, uh, social problems will inevitably suffer here at home. Well, don't you think that your remarks have created doubts about the Negro's loyalty to his country? Well, some people may feel that. I don't think our loyalty to the country should be measured by our ability to kill. I think our loyalties to the country should be measured by our ability to lead the nation to higher heights of democracy and to the great dream of justice and humanity. This also applies to today's so-called liberal and conservative media pundits alike. They have long served as cheerleaders for wars just as media pundits of the past did. Do you, do you honestly feel, uh, Dr. King, that the war in Vietnam could be stopped now without harm to this country? Well, there are two ways to deal with it. Uh, one is a unilateral withdrawal. Uh, I don't oppose that because uh, I feel that this is a possibility. After all, France withdrew unilaterally from Algeria, withdrew without a military victory. Mm -hmm. And this did not lessen France's prestige or influence in the world. If anything, it increased its prestige but in the world. France is not the power that this country is. Well, I think that's an even greater reason why uh, we should restrain our power. Uh, there's always the danger that any nation will abuse its power. And uh, I think our power must be much more than military power. We don't need to prove to the world or anybody our military power. I think we've got to prove our moral power. Do now. you feel that this nation has abused, uh, as you say, uh, their power? Oh, I certainly do in the, in the war in Vietnam. I have no doubt about that. I'm not saying that it was done uh, with evil motives in mind, I think we made a huge miscalculation. And when you make a mistake, you ought to confess it. One of the great things about President Kennedy was that he said to the world, to his closest advisors, that he made a mistake in the Bay of Pigs invasion oh, yes. in Cuba, and he said, I never should have listened to the experts. And I think the time has come now for our leaders to say that we've made a grave mistake in Vietnam, and we ought to take the initiative in bringing an end to this conflict, if not through a unilateral withdrawal, at least through a negotiated settlement. And I think there are things that we can do 
to create the atmosphere for negotiations. You know, uh, Dr. King, my first question, when you said uh, uh, it was, uh, you didn't say it was inaccurate, but you said it was a misunderstanding that you didn't advise just Negroes not to fight in Vietnam. But I think it was interpreted that way. Now, uh, how about the heroic uh, Negroes already in Vietnam? Uh, don't your remarks belittle their accomplishments? Oh, not at all. Uh, I have nothing but admiration for the bravery of those uh, who are engaged in the kind of sacrificial and suffering situation uh, that they are in. I'm not dealing with uh, their particular situation in terms of fighting. I'm trying to do something, uh, trying to lead us somewhere that will bring an end to what I see as a terrible and a very tragic war, which is damaging the image of our nation here and abroad. Doctor, may I ask you a question? Yes. Uh, don't you feel that perhaps the parents of, of the boys who are now currently in the operation in Vietnam might uh, not be in uh, amity with your civil rights movement now because of your... I doubt that. I doubt that very seriously. Uh, I can't uh, overestimate the amount of discontent in the Negro community over the war in Vietnam. Uh, I haven't seen any loss of support in the Negro community. As I don't mean just in the Negro community. I mean, there are many, many of the Caucasians who are with your civil rights movement as well. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if you're not disingratiating yourself, how you feel about those who have their sons in Vietnam now. Well, there again, I think two things are important here. Uh, first, I think that uh, the things that I'm saying and the things that I'm trying to do and all of the people in the move peace movement are trying to do are really geared toward uh, bringing the boys back home. In other words, we are trying to prove to be their best friends by uh, doing something to bring about the climate that will bring an end to this war. Uh, secondly, anyone who is committed to civil rights would not withdraw that commitment as a result of uh, someone in the civil rights movement taking a stand against the war in Vietnam. And if they do, then they were not with it in the beginning. You stand up for what is just because it is just and right. Uh, I think it was T.S. Eliot who said, there's no greater heresy than to do the right thing for the wrong reason. That's right. And a lot of people do the right thing for the wrong reason. And I submit that anyone who would stop supporting civil rights because of a stand against the war on the part of some leaders ended up doing the right thing for the wrong reason. They were never truly committed to civil rights in the beginning. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was not merely against war, he stood for peace. He is a man who appreciated humanity. MLK supported labor rights, as well as socialist-based practices and policies. He was no fan of capitalism. He knew that this vastly unequal financial system also plays a significant role in the immense economic disparities that are riddled throughout this country. These are some of the important aspects of Dr. King's life that we should all encourage youth to celebrate and learn from. It is no coincidence that these are also aspects of his life that are routinely suppressed. Let's all do our part in helping to bring 
this history and these lessons to light. Using your feeling about unilateral and the way France settled, which was very well done, they didn't lose face. Apparently, face is the important thing at this time. But not only are we losing face, but it would be better to save lives. We know that. Mm -hmm. Who will be the GOAT if someone takes upon themselves to end this war and settle it unilaterally? Will there be a constant complaint? What a big waste this one. Will this set a precedent for the United States in the future of defending our inheritance, our independence? Well, I think we have to look at several things here. First, in my mind, peace is much more important than face. And I think there has to be a transformation here in terms of our thinking uh, and in terms of, of peace. We've got to come to see now that peace must not only be a goal that we talk about and seek, but a means by which we arrive at that goal. The other thing is this, that even though the mood of the country may not be in line with the unilateral withdrawal now, I think there are things that can be done to bring about a negotiated settlement. Now, there are many people... Uh, who have talked very closely with the leaders of North Vietnam and the National Liberation Front, who tell us if we bring about an unconditional halt in the bombings, this would get talks going. Uh, our government has refused to do that. And I feel that since we took the initiative in escalating the war in the air and on the land and on the seas, then we have a moral obligation to take the initiative uh, to de-escalate it, and I think we can do that by bringing about a halt to the bombings. And our security is Do you think, do you think that that would do it, by halting the bombing? Would that do it? Well, as I would said, about I, I can only go by men like you, Tom, uh, the Russian leaders, and many other people who have talked very closely with uh, the leadership of North Vietnam and the National Liberation Front. I think we ought to try it anyway. I think we ought to bring about an unconditional halt uh, to the bombings, and we should do that for practical reasons in terms of trying to get talks started, and I think we should do it for moral reasons. They are never going to negotiate as long as we are bombing that territory. How about your relationship with uh, President Johnson? Have you lost favor with uh, Mr. Johnson? Well, I guess the president would have to answer that question. Uh, I have taken a position against the administration's policy, and uh, I would hope that the president means what he says when he... Uh, says that there should always be room for dissent. And we come to a tragic period in our nation when we equate dissent with disloyalty. Uh, I believe firmly uh, that uh, it is necessary to have these moments of dissent in order to challenge something that may be leading the whole nation you, down the wrong do path. Do you care if you have lost favor with Mr. Johnson? Well, that isn't... Uh, I guess the most important thing to me, the important thing, is that I not lose favor with truth and with what conscience tells me is right and what conscience tells me is just. I'm much more concerned about keeping favor with these principles than keeping favor with a person who may misunderstand the position I take. We will talk further with Dr. Martin Luther King following these messages. We'll be right back. On the question of whether riots have uh, helped, uh, I've taken the position that uh, riots are socially destructive and self-defeating, and therefore I have to take a stand against it because of my deep commitment uh, to nonviolence. On the other hand, 
I do think a riot is the language of the unheard. Uh, and America has failed to hear, for instance, that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last 10 or 15 years. I think it has also failed to hear that uh, large segments of white society are more uh, committed uh, to tranquility and the status quo than to justice and humanity and equality. And in that sense, I think the riots have called attention to something. Not that they have brought about social transformation, but they've called attention to a very serious problem uh, in our society. This is Crash Course Black American History. Today, we'll be discussing a hero of mine, somebody who used her writing, research, and unrelenting commitment to become one of the most important anti-lynching advocates in American history. We are talking about the one and the only Mrs. Ida B. Wells Barnett. Her anti-lynching campaign brought international attention to the omnipresent threat of violence plaguing black Americans in the South and in other parts of the United States. Her career would also lead her to becoming one of the founding members of the National Association of Colored Women and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Her work was invaluable in the early struggle for black American civil rights, and she helped lay the groundwork for generations of black activists 
and journalists who would come after her. Let's start the show. I want to note up top that there will be mentions of physical and sexual violence in this episode. Wells was born enslaved in 1862 in Holly Springs, Mississippi. Wells' father, James, was involved with the Freedmen's Aid Society and helped to establish a college for newly freed black Americans in Holly Springs called Shaw University. Renamed West College in 1892, the school would join the ranks of a growing number of HBCUs, or historically black colleges and universities, formed during this period. On a personal note, as the child and the grandchild and the nephew and the cousin and the husband of people who all went to HBCUs, I can't begin to express how important these schools have been to the black community, places that, for years, were the only institutions that black people could count on for higher education. Given her father's work, Wells grew up around black folks who were trying to build a better, more just society for her people. But after losing both of her parents and one of her siblings to yellow fever, she became the primary caregiver to her five brothers and sisters. Wells found herself taking care of her siblings while also working as a teacher and attending school at Russ College. During this time, she discovered her passion for writing. In 1882, Wells moved to Memphis, Tennessee, where her career as a journalist would begin. She became co-owner of a local newspaper where she wrote passionate editorials and conducted in-depth investigative work to shine a light on the widespread acts of lynchings in the South. Lynching, or killing by way of mob without a trial, became a common form of retribution in the South as a means of administering vigilante justice absent of due process. These acts of violence took many forms, perhaps most infamously, hanging a person from a tree. These acts were designed to inspire fear and were used as an intimidation tactic against African Americans to assert social, political, and economic control. And unfortunately, black Americans in the South had to live with the looming threat that such violence could happen to them or their family at any moment. It's important to remember also that this history wasn't that long ago. In my own book, How the Word is Passed, I describe how my own grandfather, born in 1930 Mississippi, told me a story of how, when he was a boy, a black man in his small town of just a thousand people was kidnapped by night riders, hung from a tree, and castrated. And this sort of thing was happening all across the South. Lynchings could and often did take place without the victim having been charged with any sort of crime. And even if someone had been charged with a crime, a vigilante mob kidnapping someone in the middle of the night and killing them is not justice, no matter what the accusation is. As you can imagine, people were scared. To speak out against lynching would put a target on your back. And what's remarkable about Ida B. Wells is that she knew this and did it anyway. And while Wells was brave, she was also strategic. Wells's editorials and investigative reporting angered many local whites. And while she wanted to make waves, she understood that to be effective, she needed to stay alive. So she published many articles in black newspapers and periodicals under the moniker Iola. Lynching was not the only cause Ida B. Wells took a stand against. She also sued the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad Company for discrimination. As the story goes, she purchased a first-class train ticket for a ride 
from Memphis to Woodstock, Tennessee. But the train crew ordered her to move to the car reserved for African Americans. But Wells did not leave the first class car voluntarily. The conductor and some passengers forcibly removed her and then kicked her off the train. She won a $500 settlement in a circuit court case, but that decision was later overturned by the Tennessee Supreme Court in 1887. Following this train situation, Wells became even more impassioned to combat discrimination against black Americans in all areas. For example, while working as a journalist, Wells became a teacher at a segregated public school in Memphis, Tennessee. That firsthand experience led her to begin writing about educational inequality, and this time under her own name. As a result, in 1891, after publicly criticizing the lack of resources for black-only schools in the area, she was fired. The following year, her efforts as a journalist refocused on the lynching problem in the South after she lost three of her friends. Calvin McDowell, Thomas Moss, and Will Stewart owned a store called The People's Grocery in Memphis. The presence of this moderately successful black-owned business sparked anger and unrest among the local white community. On March 3, 1892, a group of white men, including a sheriff's deputy, went to the People's Grocery to confront McDowell, Moss, and Stewart. This led to an altercation, and by the time it was over, some of the white men had been injured. As a result, McDowell, Moss, and Stewart were arrested, and some Memphis newspapers referred to the men's efforts to defend themselves and their store as an armed rebellion by the black men in Memphis. Just a few days later, at 2.30 in the morning, a mob of 75 masked men broke into the jail and kidnapped McDowell, Moss, and Stewart. They were brought to the edge of the town, and they were lynched. In the aftermath of the tragedy, Wells launched an extensive investigation on lynching and used her publications to openly denounce the practice. She traversed the southern states for two months to gather information on other acts of lynching. And in October of 1892, she published a pamphlet entitled Southern Horrors, which detailed all of her findings. Wells stayed in the North and never returned to Memphis, but that did not keep her from writing about the horrors of lynching in the South. Wells also took her research and anti-lynching campaign across the Atlantic, specifically to Great Britain in the 1890s. She helped establish the British Anti-Lynching Society in 1894, and her work on the transatlantic anti-lynching circuit demonstrates the ways African-American women activists internationalized social justice work. This built on the work of earlier abolitionists, like Frederick Douglass and William Wells Brown, who also traveled to England to promote the abolitionist cause. In 1895, Wells published The Red Record, which outlined the horrors of lynching to a northern audience whom Wells did not think was fully aware of everything that was going on in the South, writing that thousands of black people had been killed in cold blood without the formality of judicial trial and legal execution. She also used the pamphlet to challenge the rape myth that whites used to justify the lynching of African-American men. See, a significant component of the culture of lynching was the idea of protecting white womanhood from black men who were stereotyped as being over-sexualized and always waiting for their chance to sexually attack a white woman. Countless black men were lynched after being wrongfully accused of raping, assaulting, eyeing, or even speaking to a white woman. Wells's research, however, revealed that many victims of lynchings had not committed any crimes at all, but had rather challenged white supremacy. Challenging white supremacy 
could include anything from being a black person simply leading a successful life as a business owner to refusing to cross the street when passing a white person. According to the Equal Justice Initiative, more than 4,000 black Americans were lynched in the South alone between 1877 and 1950. And this is only the numbers that we know. There's every reason to believe that the numbers could be even higher than that. Wells had completed much of her life's work before marrying in 1895 to an attorney and newspaper editor, Ferdinand L. Barnett. The couple would have four children. Still, even after starting a family, Wells believed that her work was not done. In 1896, Wells was among the founding members of the National Association of Colored Women. The founding convention was held in Washington, D.C., and other founding members included Harriet Tubman, Francis E.W. Harper, and Mary Church Terrell. And I don't know about y'all, but that's basically like the Avengers. And she kept going. In 1898, Wells took her anti-lynching campaign to the White House. She led a protest in Washington, D.C., calling for President William McKinley to make reforms. And she called for President Woodrow Wilson to end discriminatory hiring practices in government jobs. And throughout the remainder of her life, she was incredibly active in the fight for women's suffrage. A determined woman in every respect, Ida B. Wells is one of America's greatest heroes. She had the determination and the bravery required to stand up against one of the darkest elements of America's past, and in many ways, helped lay the groundwork for both the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century and the Black Lives Matter movement of today. Her life's work was dedicated to stopping the unjust murderings of black Americans in the South, a practice that, due to the widespread, profoundly entrenched influence of the Klan, was often protected by law enforcement and legal policies. Wells died of kidney disease on March 25, 1931, at the age of 68, in Chicago, Illinois. Her legacy is a remarkable one. She did so much for so many and used her gifts and determination to help build a better world. Thanks for watching. I'll see you next time. Crash Course is made possible with the help of all these nice Okay, so that's Crash Course, focusing on the uh, life and uh, work of Ida B. Wells. And, uh, all right, let's see here. Time to call up our campus, our campus connection here. I'm going to dial, uh, we talk every week or as much as possible with two students from the University of California at Davis and talking about what students want. What's a student point of view on all that's going on in the world? But let's see. Hello, good morning. Good morning to you. How's it going? Going good. Going slow. Little slow? Okay. Going good. Okay, this is... This is the B and this is Labor and Love Radio introducing Vita Castaneda Morgan and Yemen Kabaz, our student our student uh, correspondents from the University yes. of California at Davis. Mm -hmm. So um, today's question uh, is, 
What do students, specifically you two and uh, other students too, think of Joe Biden and his administration? What would they like to see Biden do or the Democratic Congress do if it were possible? Well, I don't know if you've heard that Biden, um, he went back on his word for the like loan forgiveness and for paying for community college. Huh. Okay. So, so that's one thing that's not great. And then also I don't like that a whole bunch of the senators are able to make money, you know, off of things that they make legislation on and they know in advance right. and they cash out. That's right. become a big problem. I think people like Nancy Pelosi and Diane Feinstein, there should be a limit, like especially like maybe there could be some ratio created as to like how many bills are actually passed in that party's favor, like in terms of their efficacy, you uh-huh. know, like if they're not efficient and they've been there for so long, like maybe they should go because it's not fair after a while because they're just making more money to run again and to stay there in the same spot and things don't change. Yes, plus oftentimes if they are unelected, if they are, you know, uh, deselected by the public, a lot of Congress people like that will go into the private sector and work at things, you know, that they uh, championed while they were, while they were uh, in office. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yemen, what's your yeah. take on all this? I would like to see the Biden administration sort of uh, protect education from being too corporatized, being too monetized, because it's our country at the end of the day that reaps the benefits of the people who graduate from these universities and these colleges, and if we're just selling them out, and letting them sell education like, like an iPad, like you know, like a, like a, like a capitalistic product, mm-hmm. you know, internationally, like, and not give opportunities and not make it easy for people here. Then we're just going to keep, you know, we, the country's going to keep getting worse, uh-huh. worse off as you need your students to uh, fix the problems that you have for the the next generations and increase GDP. It doesn't make sense that you sell degrees like you sell cars. You know, there should be more regulation when it comes to that. Universities should be held accountable. Uh, We should be making sure that, you know, we bring people into, you know, we bring people from from the nation here into our best schools and have them graduate, you know, like, yeah, as opposed to like international students yeah, paying higher prices. Right. You know, because they're taking their degrees and and they're going, they're, they're taking off, and then you know a lot of times they come back and then run our factories. You know, from you know, this doesn't doesn't make sense. How are we how are we going to get out of the hole that we're in if we're not planting any seeds? I'd I'd like to see more regulation and more action on that part from the Biden administration. And of course, you know, like the loans would be nice. Oh know, yeah. To an extent. I, yeah. Be- I, 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 as I walk around, I look around and look at young people and 
I think, geez, hopefully that person doesn't owe a bunch of money. Yeah. yeah because it's so... Probably. Yeah, that's interesting, Yemen, because today we had a feature about a giant education corporation called the Pearson Corporation, uh -huh. Pearson I've Education. Had to use their products. Yeah, well, they publish all kinds of, you know, they publish the tests that people take, and right. they publish textbooks, and their goal is to make kids to have program kids sitting in front of computers all day long and learning that way. So uh, they have a lot of lot of influence. They've grown a lot. They used to just publish books. Okay, you guys, I'm pushing time a little, but I certainly appreciate your coming on. And I wonder if there's any last thing you'd like to add, Vita or Yemen? Hmm. I think the U.S. should care about its own domestic affairs before it worries about external foreign affairs. Here, yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, I would uh, double down on that. I think we're in a very uh, critical stage of, of history right now, and we need to uh, we need to come out as as the Americans that we once were, you know, not obviously not when we colonized all the natives, when we reflected and decided that we were going to be better than that. We need to maintain that attitude. Definitely. And, uh, because, you know, world peace is what we're about and that's what's on the line. It certainly is day by day. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And we will talk next week. You guys have a good week and good work. Talk to you soon. Okay, that was Vita in Yemen, and um, there are contacts uh, for the campus correspondence, right? Let's see, I wanted to play people who, for example, have celebrate our celebrating valentines here's how you do it with union stuff there's no holiday more romantic and pressure packed here are the the jobs the <clears throat> brands below are some of our favorites in fact we really love them in other words they're unionized seize candies jelly bellies candies in san leandro Hershey Foods Corporation, that Hershey bar is unionized. Giardelli, Sconza, Annabelle, they make Rocky Road, I like Rocky Road. Frankfurt, Frankfurt Candy and Chocolate. Union-made Champagne, Champagne Chazelemage, Chateau Saint-Miguel, Cook Champagne and Tot Champagne. I'm sorry, Chateau Saint-Michel. Beers. Anchor, Bass. Specs, Blue Moon, Budweiser, Coors, Dundee, Goose Island, Hams, Henry Weinhardt's, Keystone, Kieran, Landshark Lager, Leinenkugel, Mad River, Mendocino, Michelob, Miller, Natural Ice, O'Doul's, Pabst, Rolling Rock, Schlitz, Shock Top, 
Barks Root Beer, Coke, Dr. Pepper, Pepsi, and Sprite. A lot of these things are unionized, huh? Snacks, Act 2, Popcorn, Cheez-It, Cheetos, Chex, Doritos, Roll Gold, Pretzels, Slim Jim, Sun, Gi- Sun Chips, and Wheat Thins. Okay. So if you want a party, you want to celebrate the ball game, do it with union stuff. Let's see if we have lift every voice and sing. We played earlier. Okay. This is the B, and it's almost time to go. This is Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. One person gets a dollar they didn't work for. Someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, a negotiating table, that is, You're on the menu. And never never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean stories. Have a good week and good work.
pretty little poppy. You know what I Place to listen to crazy things. Let's watch full-length movie on YouTube with Michael Spiegelman. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Let's Spiegelman. We're hosts of YouTube, YouTube with Michael Spiegelman. Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L W A F L M O Y T. We watch a full length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah, L W A F L M O Y T. Yeah, L W A F L M O Y T. That's every Sunday, two p.m. Pacific Standard Time, or if you're Carl, five percent, five percent. Right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later, I finally get to the show. Five p.m. Let's hear the theme song. Oh, uh, uh, let's watch full length. length movie. Oh, wait, let's do a full minute promo. Oh, never mind. Bye. See, ya. See you next month. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Hey, Mutineers, Stolowitz here. Have you ever listened to Labor and Love on Saturday mornings, 10 to noon, with Bill Morgan? It's a really excellent show, one of my favorites here at the station. And it's all about service. It might be the devil, it might be the Lord, but we got to serve somebody. And Bill understands the virtue of service as the heart and soul of the labor movement better than a lot of people I know. And it's one of the reasons I love to listen to him. He breaks down socialism, democracy, protest history, workers' news, and the power of unions. Along with that, he serves up an excellent mix of jazz, Latin, gospel, hip-hop, and traditional folk ballads. Great stuff. Check it out. Labor and Love is every Saturday, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Serve somebody. Since 1971, the San Francisco Tenants Union has been fighting for the rights of tenants and for the preservation of affordable housing in San Francisco. Starting from the struggle for rent control in the 1970s, the Tenants Union has been the city's leading advocate for tenants. The Tenants Union is supported by membership and counseling donations, and this enables advocacy to be uncompromising and not influenced by pressures from government or other funders. It is a 501c4 since it campaigns for political candidates, so generally donations are not tax deductible, although large donations may qualify. Please visit WFTU.org for more information. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Thanks for having you in the top. Thanks for having you in the top. 
full of black plastic. Mutiny Radio. FM. Saturday. Noon to two. Every Saturday. All music. All night. ACLU of California reminds us that we have the right to speak out. Both the California Constitution and the First Amendment to the United States Constitution protect our rights to free expression. There are many questions we face when we decide to organize and speak out. Do we need a permit? Are there limitations? Or when or when can we not demonstrate? What about civil disobedience? For all of this information, please check out ACLUNC.org. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio in San Francisco. Alex! Can you tell me what food relieves insomnia, anxiety, stress, chronic brain, depression, nausea, and can induce euphoria and stimulate appetite? I'm going to guess waffles. <laughs> that is incorrect. <laughs> Actually, Alex, the food I'm talking about are cannabis-based medicinal extracts. Cannabis-based medicinal extracts? That sounds like you're smoking drugs, Ed. No, baby. There are smokeless, safe, and less expensive alternatives smoking. But can I use it to sleep? Yes, baby! Good! Because I'm so excited by this that I may never sleep again! And it sounds like you, Alex, may want to check out the number 4altacalifornia.com That's 4altacalifornia.com for a non-addictive pharmaceutical free alternative to smoking medical marijuana. Check them out today at number 4altacalifornia.com Safe sex is more than just avoiding STIs and pregnancy, no matter what you're into. Make sure that you and those around you feel safe, comfortable, and are having a good time. This public service announcement is brought to you by your friends at Mutiny Radio. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be... Like in front of an audience? Like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead peasants? Oh, shit. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way! What is this dag nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> San Francisco Mutiny Radio San Francisco Mutiny Radio Listen to live streaming radio Or download a podcast And you can listen on the go Listen to live streaming radio 
radio or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. MutinyRadio.fm Why not make a donation? MutinyRadio.fm Streaming live the station. MutinyRadio.fm District of the Mission. MutinyRadio.fm MutinyRadio.fm My name is Breakfast, and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pen, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign we leaders, so much of this. look good on camera, and solve hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disaster, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval. And invest in the American flag country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the chancellor. Cause the sun to set again with irreverent bow. Who rival the moon with gravitational force. Who leave rooms feeling empty and earthquake struck. Who don't give a fuck. Who make. Who do. Who dream out loud and laugh like maniacs. Who draw shock and awe on faces graced with watching. Who create from the soul of an orgasm. Who swagger even alone in the shower. Who fight with passion and love with passion and are passion. Who catapult over cliffs in the name of revolution. Who would rather die than fall in line to conform, who constantly challenge the norm, who greet each and every day as if just born, I say to you I know your greatness the way a suicide jumper knows weightless just before the impact, and in fact I know it best when I say to you, I love you. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are you on a raft without a pet? Look at 